Hello and welcome to the Coke Podcast, a podcast brought to you by the Quality of Government Institute at the University of Gothenburg. In this podcast, we have conversations with well-known experts to try to make sense of politics and governments all over the world. Your host for this show is Professor Victor Lapuente, and in this episode, he will be joined by Professor Deidre McCloskey, one of the most heterodox, provocative, and prophylic economists of our time. In this episode, we will talk about a question McCloskey has devoted a great deal of her work. Why some nations are successful and others fail. McCloskey will explain her answer to this, which may not be the most convincing for all of us, but it is definitely the most beautiful and romantic one. Economic development is not the result of the accumulation of capital, or of exploitation, or of military conquest and colonial oppression, but of ideas and values, and in particular, of love. We will talk about why an economist need to care about love, and not simply about utility. McCloskey will defend her view that economics is not about the material or materialism, but it is about ideas. It's not only about factories and cars and smartphones, but mostly about what happens between the ears. And though we will talk a lot about ideas, we will also talk about the materialist most pressing social question, how to alleviate poverty and tackle inequality. We hope you find this episode interesting. Please like and share it if you do. My name is Victor Apuente, and today in the podcast we have Professor Deidre McCloskey, one of the most provocative and prolific economists of our time, who has written 24 books, around 400 academic and popular articles on issues as diverse as economic history, rhetoric, philosophy, statistical theory, economic theory, and she describes herself as a literary, quantitative, postmodern, free market, progressive, Episcopalian, ex-Marxist, Midwestern woman from Boston who was once a man, not conservative. I am a Christian classical liberal, she says. Her work is as vast as the oceans and her methods as well. She's able to masterfully dismantle a statistical architecture of Thomas Piketty's data on inequality, and two paragraphs later, masterfully using the verses of Shakespeare to illustrate her points. I've gained so much wisdom reading her, and I have lost maybe so many friends recommending her work. Well, not so many. Everyone appreciates the brilliancy of your way of thinking, Deirdre. And uh, McCloskey has addressed, like many others in different disciplines, and like many researchers here at the Quality of Government Institute, the big question of why some nations are successful and others fail. And I don't know if McCloskey provides the most convincing answer, but definitely hers is the most beautiful response. It's ideas, it's virtues, and capital among them, it's love. At least love plays a vital role in her explanation. And uh, it's capitalism, of course, it's uh, liberal ideas of free exchange, to be more precise. But we can say that hers is the most romantic, if you allow me the adjective that probably you don't like much, an idealist, an adjective that probably you don't like either, defense of capitalism ever. Not only for that strange mixture of love and capitalism, her work should be mandatory for any graduate student, but also for policy makers. So welcome to our podcast, Professor McCloskey. 
The first question is about the profession of an economist or social scientist in general. Why an economist needs to care about love and not simply about utility? You claim that economics is not about or not only about the material or materialism. It's about ideas. It's not only about factories, cars, and smartphones, but it's mostly about what happens between the ears. Do you want well, economists to follow the steps of, I don't know, Adam Smith in the theory of moral sentiments and become yes. moral philosophers? Yes, that is certainly what I want them to do. I want them to go back to Adam Smith. And I always cross myself when I mention Smith. Um, because he had, he was, as you said, a philosopher and also an observer of the economy. In a in a phrase of Bob um, Halberd's, Smith was a worldly philosopher, and that's exactly the combination that we ought to have. And it's plain that humans are love, and they hate, <laughs> unfortunately, and they are. And they're prudent, and they're imprudent, they're just, and they're unjust. And all these things are part of how we behave in the marketplace or in the council room. And so it's, it's clear from the outset, as Adam Smith said, that we should be not hopping along on one leg, the prudent leg, but also the other ethical legs have evoked image of a, of a seven-legged human, but you understand what I mean. Yeah, and, and you, you talk about transforming economics in humanomics, or, yeah, and, and you, you want to avoid to fall into extremes. On the one hand, the mere study of the objective reality, which probably yes. provides you an empty response to deep things of, of the humans, but also on the other side, you want to avoid the mere study of the subjective experience, which would be yes, also sure. a daunting task. And then you opt for studying something that you refer to with a term that I assume you have coined, and I find it particularly useful, the conjective. Yes, would you explain right. us what the conjective well, is? What we know, it's what we know together, because we speak to each other, because we're raised as... We, we have a mom and a, raised his children. We're in It's impossible to get inside someone's mind. I think the brain scientist who tries to identify this organ, the brain, with the mind is having a hard time at it. I can observe flows of oxygen in your brain. But I can't in, get inside your own mind. And then, so far as the objective is concerned, I can't be sure, this is an old point in philosophy, that this, this so-called material, which, as we all know, is actually composed largely of empty space, is there. Perhaps it's a trick of this mind of mine. But what we can know is in between the two is how we interact with each other, how our, how our language goes, what price we asked, and, and how we regard that as unfair or something of that sort. So, so it's, 
it's a realm where we could actually have solid information for sure. Now, that doesn't mean I'm, I'm not interested in mines or material, but a great deal of what we do as humans takes place in this conjective. In your trilogy, The Bourgeois Era, that started in 2006 with The Bourgeois Virtus, continued in 2010 with The Bourgeois Dignity, and culminated in 2016 with The Bourgeois Equality, three fantastic uh, books, there is a, a particular historical period that you pay a lot of attention, which is the Industrial Revolution, or to be more precise, the Great Enrichment, that yes. took place in a relatively unlikely corner of the world, which is Northwestern Europe, mostly yes. the Netherlands and Britain. And the question is, what made this great enrichment possible there? Well, I claim it was a change in ideology. It was a change in the, not in how entrepreneurs thought, but how the rest of society thought about entrepreneurs. And there's a great deal of evidence that this change to the place, if you contrast the attitudes of Shakespeare about entrepreneurs such as himself in the theater, he's utterly disdainful of such folk. The heroes in Shakespeare are the inherited aristocrats. The self-made men are comical in his view. And then you go to a couple of centuries afterwards, to someone like Jane Austen, whom I, whom I love. And she, her, she had a, a brother who became active in banking in London. And she's amiable, which is one of her favorite words, towards entrepreneurs. And it's a great change that happens in Sweden, essentially, in the middle of the 19th century. And results in enormous economic growth. Sweden goes from being one of the poorest countries on the continent to being being Sweden we, we all appreciate, essentially from the 18, 1860s to the 1930s. And so it's gone. In every country that has come to honor entrepreneurship in art, as, as much as in commerce, there's been a corresponding explosion of creativity. The, the spectacular modern case, of course, is China, which until 1978 was uh, crawling along on one or two dollars a day per person. And then what happened was not a psychological change within the Chinese, but a change of the attitude of the society, in particular, the attitude of the Chinese Communist Party towards commerce. And the result was that now China has about the same average income as Brazil. I apologize for being so non-fluent this, this morning. I'm, I usually don't stutter so much. When I get into the flow, I get we understand perfectly your, your very clear ideas. Yes, yes. Uh, Okay, coming back to this Northwestern Europe, I think that there were, of course, as much as I appreciate your hypothesis on ideology, there were other things 
different as well in the Netherlands and in Britain. And coming back to a traditional explanation that we, the political scientists, uh, tend to like a lot, why not institutions? It didn't the democracy or proto-democracy help to explain the Industrial Revolution that took place precisely in the post-glorious wow. revolution when the power moved from the king to the king in parliament or, well, or, or, in, Bri- or in, the, in the Holland that were constraints on, on, on the king. Well, but here, here's, there is a way in which such changes, it was, it was more than the, the so-called glorious revolution of 1689. It was more like the English Revolution of 1640s that very much earlier made it clear that an anointed king could be tried and executed. Yes, indeed. (laughs) The main idea that made for the modern world is one I always stutter on, (laughs) apologize. It's liberalism. And indeed, through that route, the ethical, the gradual, very gradual, at their very beginnings, the gradual emancipations of the 17th, but especially of the 18th, and then most especially of 19th century, mattered a great deal for the economy, that being the point. So it, I would claim, and I've, I, I've gotten clearer on this, clearer and clearer, that it's this idea of a society without slaves, a society without coerced subordination, no subordination of wives to husbands or apprentices to masters or slaves to masters, or indeed citizens to the state. That idea that we should be free, not free to blow COVID up each each other's noses, not free to rob each other, but free within the constraints of other people's freedoms. That idea is central to the modern world and makes for, it turned out, somewhat, you should say, I should say by accident, turned out to be extremely encouraging for ordinary people to try things out in the economy. Now, the counterforce in this history is the growth of the state. But observe, the state starts really growing in in the West and lots of other places only in the 20th century. And by that time, as I said, as I claimed about Sweden, these countries that had adopted liberalism, those countries had already achieved high incomes, very high incomes, historically completely unprecedented incomes. So it was not the coming of the state, as is sometimes claimed, that made us rich. If that were the case, there were lots of earlier large, uh, arrogant state powers in the world, and the great enrichment should have happened in Rome or in China. But in fact, it happened in the unpromising quarter of Eurasia. Actually, many political scientists who defend a strong action of the state would agree with you in the sense that probably the emphasis should not be in the quantity of a state, but in the quality of the oh, state. Oh, yeah. Well, that here is we an- agree. 
well, here at the Quality of Government Institute, we do not only like government, but we even like bureaucrats, non-elected officials. So in that sense, we would say that before democracy, we need bureaucracy. There is a a work by Michel Darcy and Marina Nistoskaya here from the Quality of Government Institute that show that countries where the state develop extensive enforcement capacities and using as indicator of historical state capacity, the extent and quality of cadastral records, before democratization, they exhibit, well, better provision of essential public goods, protection of property rights, and and so on. So maybe you need a bit of of a state. If in Pakistan there are roughly 30% of children who are born and they are not registered, it's impossible to really organize a society uh, on those bases. But but that's about organization from above. And what makes for enrichment is spontaneous order from below. And they are not complementary to each other? Sometimes in small amounts they are, but it's perfectly clear that if you have massive regulation, the United States federal government has millions of regulations of the details of our lives. It's clear that to go to an even further extreme Central planning, such as occurred in the old Soviet Union or in Mao's China, doesn't work. Doesn't work at all. It's not not only evil in being unfree, but it's evil in being unproductive. Now, yes, there needs to be the rule of law. But the rule of law doesn't depend on kings. This is a fundamental error. Uh, which my friend Doug North and my friend Barry Weingast always commit. They always think, as James I of England thought, that all law comes from the king. Therefore, if you don't have a strong king, you don't have law. And that's just, just if you think about it, it's historically absurd. Most of the laws that actually govern our lives in Sweden or the United States or India, wherever you want, are spontaneous orders from below. The Swedish language, for example, has no central control, thank God. And and it would be the the French Academy keeps trying to outlaw English words, but but French people still say le weekend. And the the French Academy hates it. That's the centralized power attempting to control the French uh, language. Language, friendship in Sweden, as in my country and others, there's no central control of who you become friends with. Uh, Ordinary behavior, such as in in our conversation here, has nothing to do with the state or the courts. And indeed, most legal, what we would call commercial disputes in the actual world, as against the fantasies of people who believe that the state is honest and competent all the time, as it is for the most part in Sweden, and as it is not in my own country, most of what we do is governed by spontaneous orders. So institutions 
the formal institutions that people talk about in neo-institutionalism, courts, government regulations, and so forth, those are a small part of our lives. They have to come from somewhere, but they usually don't come from the state. You make this point with grace and elegance in the in the book written with Art Carden uh, with the provocative title of Leave Me Alone and I'll Make You Rich, How the Bourgeois Deal Enriched the World. And you talk about the importance of this bourgeois deal for the development of Holland and Britain. But if in the year 1799, for example, there was a, God prevented that from happening, but there was a World Bank index of state capacity or government regulation. Yeah, yeah. Where do you think that the cases of Holland and Britain would rank? Because Joel Mokir, oh. in the review of, of your book, uh, argues that uh, probably these two countries are areas in which actually economic regulation was tight and taxation was relatively heavy in comparison with other countries. And he argues that the British laissez-faire yeah. economy took place later, not before this great enrichment. What would you yeah, well, uh, it, you know, uh, respond? Joel is a dear friend of mine, and, and he and I agree, deeply agree, that ideas made the modern world. That it wasn't trade, that it wasn't various forms of state coercion, it was not banking, it was not canals, it was ideas. Joel tends to think that it's the idea of science, and I tend to think it's the idea of liberalism. And that's the main gap between us, but it's not <laughs> in the larger scale. It's Joel and me against the, the prudence-only materialists, such as, as North. Yeah, and I uh, think you, you really, you and, and Joel Mokir provide a very refreshing view after years, probably decades, at least in political science, of, of dominion of the institutionalist explanation. You provide yeah, yeah, this ideational yeah. one yeah. about the yeah, and, and, virtues. And, 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 and observe, the institutions of which Joel is speaking only work if you have an idea of integrity in public service. And to claim that Britain in the 18th century was more well-organized than France in the 18th century strikes me as slightly crazy. And if Joe were here, I would, I would make this point in exactly the same terms because I have. So it, it's very odd to think that state capacity was superior in England or in Holland. Now, it's true what is true is that the kind of taxation that was used in England was able to collect more funds to fight the French in the 18th uh, century than the French were able to arrange because the French had the uh, unhappy idea, aristocratic idea, that aristocrats, the nobility, should be free from taxation. In fact, in France, you could buy a patent of nobility, which you would give cash to the king, and then the king would exempt you and your family forever from taxation. <laughs> Now, this is obviously not a good way to get money to build ships to fight the British. But that's really the only respect in which administration was superior in Britain compared with France. France was then 
and before and ever after centralized. And that's the ideal of the statists. So my, I, friends, my dear friends, they believe growth and progress, and apparently they think art and music and the Swedish language all come from the state, and they're mistaken. In that sense, I think it, it agrees with the argument of quality of government. So here, the difference that we have is that probably the, the French were violating this rule of impartiality and the ones who had connections or, or so could pay this. Uh, that's completely false. No, that, that's false. There, it, it's, it's well known that in Britain in the 18th century, you could buy yourself out of almost anything. Look, my own town of Chicago in the late 19th century was the fastest growing city in the world. Every politician, every policeman, every judge was for sale. The only question is, would they stay bought? <laughs> or would they also sell themselves to the other side? Correct me if I am wrong, but I think this tradition has continued. Several governors of yes, Illinois yes, have been... Something like the majority, <laughs> I think yes. it's four, of the last seven governors of Illinois have ended up in jail. Yeah, and I think, and I know, I, I think this is your your idea is really original, and this ideological change that happened in northwestern Europe. The question is, why happened there? Was just Europe lucky, or there was, uh, yes. for example, uh, which is because you don't discuss much, or or you don't give uh, maybe too much attention to the Enlightenment philosophers, Enlightenment oh. ideas. Don't you think that the idea, Richard Robertson, in his latest book on, on the Enlightenment, for example, when he talks about a movement moving in, in all Europe in the direction of, of expanding human liberty and, and the pursuit of happiness and so on, don't you think that this idea of the oh, philosophers the played a role? Here's the problem. Uh, and here is, here is an, another point in which Joel and I don't entirely agree. I emphasize the, the, the part of the Enlightenment, which, which I'm perfectly prepared to acknowledge was a very important change that made, that made people free. Whereas Joel wants to emphasize not the, the freedom side of the Enlightenment, but the reason side of the Enlightenment. I think both are important and interesting. But the part that made for economic growth was not the reason side, but the freedom side. It's the French Enlightenment versus the Scottish. Of course, the French Enlightenment was much larger. The French Enlightenment's emphasis was on reason and on the application of reason to human affairs. But the form of the application was French and centralized and statist. That was the French idea. The Scottish idea, on the other hand, was to apply reason to thinking about society, not organizing the society. And it's not just Adam Smith, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's Hume and, and a whole slew of others who had this idea of gradual improvement, but not massive reason-governed regulation of the economy or anything else. And it's this freedom, you know, it's, it's as though there's something in between. I spoke of the conjective before. 
there's the king. Let's think of the think of the state in terms of the king. And then there's you. <laughs> and that's nice. You, the king can act and you can act. But wait a second. What mainly goes on in any society happens in the middle, in the conjective. It happens by the spontaneous orders in music and language and art and science. The very things that Joel emphasizes, science in particular, are themselves spontaneous orders that come from freedom. I, I, one of the most counterintuitive ideas of yours is this, that the scientific revolution did not play the role that many assumed that it played, that yes. maybe poetry was more important. And actually, you have even argued uh, half jokingly, I guess, that if governments had to subsidize intellectual activities, better if they fund poets than astronomers, which I, I cannot avoid thinking how the U.S. would look like if billions, the billions invested in, in NASA have been invested in poets. Oh, but probably, wonderful Yeah, it. yeah, with cafe lattes and, and breweries and uh, all over the place and hipsters that, uh, yeah, probably. But can you develop, develop a little bit more? Because most people tend to think that scientific ideas are developed initially in labs or in university papers that is called the basic science, and then they translate yeah. into the real world. Uh, that yeah. is the prevailing view by, for example, Mariana Machucacho, The Entrepreneurial yeah, yeah. Estate, a book that I guess is not of your taste. I wrote an entire short book with Alberto Mingardi on her book, and we said, no, it's wrong. That view is not entirely mistaken. Nowadays, there is to some degree this chain of causation from the laboratory, the inquiring scientist, to engineering. I mean, after all, the technology that we're now employing started in some labs and is now we're, we're actually able to speak from Sweden to the United States. All right, but I would argue that the great enrichment, which is a much better term, by the way, than the industrial revolution, which has all kinds of problems. For one thing, what's meant by industry. But, but the great enrichment happened well before science became crucial. So that's just a matter of historical chronology. And Joel and I argue about this, but Joel really hasn't got very, very much of an answer. And the other problem is that science, or indeed the Enlightenment, were European-wide. And yet, the great enrichment clearly started in England and Scotland. So that's another problem. And then there's the third and perhaps the most important. And that is that when we think of science, we think of it as though it were a German, or for that matter, Swedish word, science and technology. That's what we say. We say, well, science and technology is very important. And I say, yeah, uh-huh. Technology is important. Ingenuity is important. Ericsson, the Swedish engineer who invented the screw propeller in ships, his achievement was mainly technology, was mainly ingenuity. The Swedish nurse, I forget her name, who invented the little cart that old people use 
You know, you'll see you'll see them on the street going shopping, and they're holding onto this this cart that was invented by a Swedish nurse. That's not science. <laughs> Inexpensive steel and and so forth. That's what goes into it. Steel itself was not a primarily scientific achievement. So science and technology is to claim that every ingenuity, such as the zipper, is, a, is, is caused by someone, some academic in a lab. And that's just not true. Let's talk a little bit about love. I mean, we normally see capitalism, and I know you don't like the word capitalism. You prefer no, others great, like true. innovation or innovism. You know, but many see this capitalism or innovation as opposed to, to love. Probably there is nothing yes, more opposed to love in the public discourse and especially in the public culture as capitalism. But you actually yeah. argue that love is one of the drivers, one of the seven virtues behind the Bourgeois model that promoted capitalism. Can you explain yes. for us, especially sure. for the romantic cheesy Marxist who can see uh, capitalism as based on the exploitation of workers and hate class? Yeah and not love, but actually you see this, this kind of link between yeah. actually between capitalism and this, the seven capital virtues of the Christian tradition, which are the four cardinal virtues of prudence, justice, temperance, and fortitude that come mostly from ancient Greece and Rome, with the three theological virtues of faith, hope, and charity or, or love that come from the Christian religion. They are very old. Why they are important actors in your story? Well, the sort of easy answer is, or the la is last page and a half of the first book in the trilogy called The Bourgeois Virtues, which is a short sermon, you, you might say, on how the virtues play in a commercial society. These aren't new virtues. Innovism does not invent new virtues, but it uses and indeed encourages the old virtues in new combinations. So sorry, which is the causal relationship? Comes from the virtues to the capitalism or from to liberalism Both. or from liberalism to these virtues? Both. I mean, it, it's clear. As Montesquieu pointed out, he, he called it du commerce, sweet uh, um, commerce, because Commerce, like stones in a stream, in a mountain stream, rounding each other, the constant interaction of commerce evokes, calls out ordinary human virtues and reinforces them. It's not true, as is often thought, that the way to wealth innovism is cheating. That's, that's just not true. It doesn't work out. But on the, on the particular virtue of love, how does an office, or for that matter, an academic department, actually operate? It operates on love. If you don't have a certain affection for your colleagues in any enterprise, it's going to work poorly. Take Donald Trump's enterprises. Donald Trump doesn't love anyone. He's just lacking in any ethical compass. And you might say, well, ha, ha that shows that, 
being a Donald Trump is how to succeed in this modern society, as though there weren't hundreds of examples in history of Donald Trump-like characters who for a moment succeeded. His enterprises have all failed. Every one of them. <laughs> he's, he's terrible at commerce. Love runs human families, and the family is a model, psychologically speaking, for how to treat other people, your friends when you're a teenager, your colleagues when you're an adult. No society can operate without love. And that doesn't mean that the economy is a matter of charity alone. It's a matter of exchange, but even exchanges result in encouraging love. You buy a newspaper from the man at the corner every day, and you eventually become his friend. It's, it's just how humans are. This is truly beautiful. Let's finish the discussion talking about the dark side, which uh, is inequality. You are provocative with everything, but with inequality, I would say that you are doubly provocative because you do, you not. <laughs> I don't only, mean to be. I'm not trying to be provocative. Yeah, but, but yeah, you I'm don't try. But yeah, you, you, your your ideas end up being, and and you not I only know. deny that inequality, objective inequality, has bad effects on the workings of democracy, what puts you against the vast majority of economies, but you also to start with question one of the most conventional working assumptions that we have in social science in general, that there has been an increase of inequality in recent decades. And we have been told that, for example, the share of the economy that goes to the labor in contrast to the capital has been falling since the 70s and so on. But you, you question that. There all, all this stuff is false. And I don't say it just to say, now, let's see. Here's what everyone says. Ah, yes. I'll say the opposite because that'll make me, I don't know, famous. That's really, I promise you, that's not my motivation. What I do, and I think every scientist should, is I, I examine the conventional views. And when they're correct, like that democracy in voting is a fine idea, I think about it for a while, and I come to agree with it in that particular case, not because to democracy always results in good collective decisions, because it's easily seen that it does not necessarily. Sometimes it does, but often it does not. But because giving votes to people is crucial in treating them as equals. It's equality of permission that's important to a society, not forced, as it has to be, equality of outcome or equality of opportunity. Your parents were undoubtedly excellent. How are we going to make your experience of life, your opportunities, equal to someone else's? Aha. Let's take away you from your parents and hand you over to less skilled parents. Or we can use the instruments of the state to force the bad parents to be improved. And to some degree, I'm in favor of that, but it's very small in its actual if effect. It's not equality of opportunity or certainly of outcome. 
that we should be concerned with. It's equality of permission. Liberalism is deeply egalitarian. You are to have as, as a woman, as a black, as whoever you are, old or young, you're to have the same permissions. They're not to be regulated by other people's interests. That's central to the whole idea of a free society, and it's been massively forgotten in the modern world. Now, as to the statistics on inequality, they're mistaken. And the central mistake they make, which I've pointed out, as have a number of other economists about Thomas Piketty's calculations in particular, is that they ignore the wealth that's between our ears and in the skills of our hands. Wealth, properly defined, is a stock of something that yields income. That's all it is. It's not a machine, necessarily. It's not even necessarily a thing. It's quite appropriate to speak of the social capital of the Swedes. One of the reasons that the state operating in Sweden it operates much better than in other countries is precisely the social capital of a habit of integrity among Swedish civil servants. And I have, I have friends who are Swedish civil servants. So the, if you measure capital correctly, capital is become more equal in its distribution in the last, say, 100 years. Our great-great-grandparents had few skills, although in Sweden, by the way, in the 19th century, this was not exactly true. But for the most part, my Irish ancestors, my Norwegian ancestors were highly skilled, but let's not get into that. But my, my Irish ancestors had very little human capital. They knew how to operate a shovel, and that's, that was about it. Whereas their modern ancestors in Ireland itself, finally, and certainly outside of Ireland, have acquired very great skills. And those skills are owned by the workers. So it's it's grave mistake in accounting. I've always said that an economist who doesn't get the accounting right will not get the economics right. You have to Get the capital is not just a bunch of common stocks. <laughs> it's not just stock certificates and gold. It's the things that make income for us. So it's actually statistically wrong that there's been a growth of inequality. And then I could add a fourth point just in one sentence, which is that many inequalities we want, m- most of them actually. If someone's a better football player than the average Swede, the people watching the Swedish national team want him to be on the team and to be paid more if it's necessary to uh, attract him from other occupations, to pay him more. The customers want him to be on the team. They want him to be paid more. If we are going to get brain surgeons, we've got to pay them more. To attract people, it's much easier 
Unfortunately, we had some technical issues and the recording decided to stop here. Therefore, this will be Deidre's last word for this podcast. But we still hope that you gained some new thoughts from this episode and that you enjoyed listening to it. Mm-hmm.